agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School for this historic 400th Politics Guys episode, Ken Cat Ken. Ken, welcome to the 400th episode of the Politics Guys. I can't wait till the 800th episode. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, Michael told me that we needed to, to celebrate this, kids, so I think we could have a celebration, uh, a real good time. Come on. <laughs> well, he specifically wanted confetti. Yes. I don't know how to do audio confetti. What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is the best that I could pull out was a little cool in the, the gang. I don't know what else to do. I don't know what you can go to. I don't know. Let's, let's, let's do it. So bring your good times and your laughter, too. Gonna celebrate your party with you. Come on now. Okay, Ken, so I think we probably should turn back some more serious things, but that's a lot of fun to be having been doing it this long. I mean, I'm not sure. I never thought about there being an end date for it. I just thought it would continue indefinitely. But I guess that really depends on how many people want to listen to two of us talk about stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't counting on an end date. That's why, that's why I was saying we can already look forward to our 800th show. Exactly. We'll go beyond that, too. Yeah. We, I mean, at some point, you know, maybe we'll just be, uh, you know, old. It'll be kind of, named, I don't know, like we'll have to change it to the old politics guys. Or <laughs> I, I can't even remember. I can't remember how many years I've been doing the politics guys, but I... You know, I've been doing other different kinds of radio shows for a long time, and I'm an old man, and I've been doing uh, radio of one form or another for more than 40 years now. Oh, wow. See, I didn't realize it was that long for you, Ken. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I started when I started college radio, when I was a freshman in college, and I've never really stopped. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, huh. See, we're learning new things. But yeah, no, so uh, 400 episodes for the politics, guys. So what are we doing, Kevin? I don't know. It was kind of like the universe said, we need lots of things <laughs> for this week <laughs> for the 400th episode. Uh, so what we're going to be taking a look at is we're going to start with Thomas's undisclosed gifts. That's going to take some time. We're going to take a look at the Prestone ruling uh, and what that might mean and what's been happening with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals this past Wednesday. Uh, from there, we're going to move any other week. This would have been kind of the lead. We're going to move into the, uh, uh, the leaked documents. Uh, that, uh, that provides some looks at the Ukraine. Uh, we're going to take a look at the most recent uh, potential arrests related to that. Uh, from there, we're going to move into some big kind of Democratic news when it comes to the Tennessee House members being expelled and, and then potentially brought back in. Uh, and then finally, we'll be closing out the show, taking a look at a pair of uh, uh, Trump uh, legal cases, one, an appeal of the Pence ruling requiring him to testify, something that Ken and I had talked about earlier a few weeks ago, uh, and then also his uh, opening a suit against Michael Cohen, a civil suit. So that's what we're going to be tackling here on the politics, guys, uh, in here in just a moment. Okay, so Ken, I think what, like we said, what we're going to be starting with is the big revelation about what's been going on with Thomas. So there's a lot here, and so I'm going to try to lead us in for listeners and maybe also give a little bit of a of a spin to it. Uh, and that is is that last week ProPublica 
uh, revealed the news that Thomas, uh, Justice Thomas had accepted gifts in the forms of vacations that could have topped a half million dollars. Now, that in of itself might seem kind of wrong on one level, but that it wasn't really the amount that made the big news. Uh, the big uh, portion of the news is that this was coming from a Republican donor, Harlan Crow, and even more problematic, and this is where uh, the issue lies, is they weren't reported on Justice Thomas's financial disclosures. Now, what makes all of this different, and I think sometimes hard for people, and you know, for those of you who are supporters uh, or who want to be a supporter, you're part of Discord. Uh, that we've been talking about right there is, you know, we talk about it, Ken, but the Supreme Court is almost entirely self-regulating because of the fact that they have four life positions. Uh, And so the question becomes, you know, how do you even deal with rule breaking when it comes to the Supreme Court? Uh, And the reporting for this kind of stuff is vastly different between Congress and the Supreme Court. Uh, So in this case, the Supreme Court, uh, the rules are effectively that you generally have to report gifts that are above $415, but it doesn't include, and this is kind of weird, I don't don't know where the origins of all of this is, uh, but it doesn't include lodging or food and entertainment um, if it's someone you know is giving it to you. And so what I actually had to do uh, was take a look at the Supreme Court filing requirements. This is not something that you know I just had off the top of my head. I, I don't know, Ken, maybe you read these more regularly than I do. I had to get into it. Uh, and so if anybody is curious, it's actually part five of the uh, yearly dis- uh, disclosure requirements that involve the federal courts, if you want to understand this. Um, and so it's relatively clear there uh, that there, there wasn't a need, even if it seems extravagant, for Thomas to be filing uh, for staying at Crow's house, eating the food, doing the fishing that he likes there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the problem potentially surrounds transportation, which includes plane tickets, boats, those kinds of options. As it says in the guidelines, uh, uh, quote, gifts other than food, lodging, or entertainment, such as transportation that substitutes for commercial transportation, end quote. Now, as I looked at it even a little bit closer, One of the things that also makes this muddy is what you're looking at initially uh, in those rules are the most the the newer and what are being called the more strict. Although, again, as somebody who doesn't look at this all the time, it doesn't appear to be uber strict, but more strict than the standards were before. And it took a long time to kind of get at that. Uh, So I took a look at a number of law professors talking about the previous rules. Uh, Northwestern University law professor uh, uh, Stephen Lubbett uh, argued, uh, yeah, well, basically these kinds of gifts, eh, it's kind of a gray area. But I continued to dig. And I, you know, so, Ken, this is, is, I don't know, I found this less appealing. For tr- At that point, I'm thinking, well, where is Thomas and all of this? Well, this actually isn't the first time that some of this stuff has been happening. And as a matter of fact, uh, if you take a look at it, on Thursday, there's even more information, and this time disclosed, that Crow actually purchased the house of Thomas's mother in 2014, along with two vacant lots down the street for $133,363. And Thomas didn't disclose any of those either. And what's even additionally weird is, is that Crow then made all kinds of repairs and things to the house, obviously, to the benefit of Justice Thomas's mother. Now, that is and has been and is clearly a violation of the reporting laws. Uh, Crow argued in a statement that he purchased all of this to eventually create a public museum for Justice Thomas. 
But of course, whether that intention is true or otherwise, that does not change the reporting requirements uh, for Thomas. So uh, for Supreme Court justices, Ken, right, I mean, again, none of this matters until there's some kind of mechanism for upholding it. And that's always a problem. Now, you would hope that members of the high court would, of course, uh, be willing to kind of, I don't know, follow the law. Uh, but that's problematic. Now, so for me, and I'm, I'm curious about your take on this, having looked at this extensively, um, you know, I was honestly, I, I was ready to give Thomas a lot of leeway, especially in the wake of all of these, the Nazis are taking over claims about Crow, which as I've investigated that, they just don't hold up. But the more I've taken a look at all of this, I have to say, whatever you think about Crow uh, or his intentions on that front, even when you're looking at this kind of with the, the reading of the best intent, I don't know how you walk away without Thomas having to report these things and seemingly over a period of time not reporting it to the same person repeatedly because he thought it would look bad. I mean, so at 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 absolute best. I think that what you can say is, is that Thomas erred and he is purposefully downplaying that uh, erring through illegality uh, or at worst, he's purposefully being illegal so that, that so that it wouldn't be apparent that he was getting uh, uh, money from Crow. Uh, so I was I was kind of expecting to have a better opportunity to maybe defend Thomas, but I don't have a lot of it here. Ken, what's your thought on this? Yeah, I mean, my thoughts are mostly similar to yours. There's maybe one or few, one or two legal points and one or two factual points I'd probably want to add to what you said. Um, so it, it, certainly you were correct that um, most of the um, uh, enforcement of this is going to be self-regulation through the Supreme Court, um, both as a formal matter and as a, a practical matter. Um, but actually, as a formal matter, um, some of the laws that he violated formally can be uh, enforced by either the Attorney General of the United States or the Judicial Conference of the United States, which is not just the Supreme Court, but it's um, it's it's a representative body of all federal judges, and they, they so they elect members to the Judicial Conference. So both both of those um, uh, entities, both the Justice Department and the Judicial Conference, um, do have statutory authority under the Ethics in Government Act um, to take enforcement actions against people who violate the um, disclosure requirements of the Ethics in Government Act, which is a federal statute that does apply to U.S. Supreme Court justices. So um, while it's true that the Supreme Court's own ethical rules uh, um, can only be enforced by the Supreme Court, um, uh, the, the, the Ethics in Government Act does have uh, other uh, enforcement mechanisms. And I think there's some pretty clear violations of it. Um, the clearest one, which you just talked about, was uh, the real estate transactions, because the Ethics in Government Act, in uh, it's in Title V of the U.S. Code, uh, uh, actually Title V-A of the U.S. Code, because it's in the appendix to Title V. So 5A, uh, Section 102, um, says um, about real estate transactions that um, among the things that must be disclosed by federal statute, including by judges and including by Supreme Court justices, um, are a brief description, the date, and the category of value of any purchase, sale, or exchange during the preceding calendar year, which exceeds $1,000 uh, in real property, other than property used solely as a personal residence of the reporting individual or his spouse. So that actually did have to be reported. And, um, and although you know, this was uh, Thomas's uh, mother's residence, um, it, it wasn't Thomas's residence. 
but Thomas was a co-owner of it. So, so the sale of it absolutely was a sale of real estate that he owned and that he didn't live in. And it's, it's crystal clear that there's a federal statute um, requiring enforcement of that, uh, requiring disclosure of that, and that the, 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 the Justice Department can bring a civil suit and seek. It's not a huge penalty, but it's up to a $50,000 fine uh, for, for not disclosing that. Um, and the, the Judicial Conference of the United States can, can take other actions. Now, I would, I would argue, although it's a closer case, I think on the, the trips that he took with, um, uh, with, with Crow, um, you know, you have some leeway under what they call the personal hospitality exception. So if, if, you go, if, 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 a, if a federal uh, officer, including a judge, you know, goes to visit a friend and, you know, the friend's a rich guy who's got, you know, a nice place to stay and maybe, you know, the value of staying there, you know, if you went to a resort, that would cost money. Um, that, that kind of thing is excluded from, from being disclosed. But I think that to me, the tricky thing here is that um, Crow also sent his private jet sometimes to pick up uh, 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 Thomas and, and Virginia Thomas to go, you know, like when they went on the yacht in Indonesia, which you could you could arguably say, well, the yacht was just visiting Crow's place, but getting there by a private jet that was sent to pick them up. Um, I, I don't think there's really any serious argument that that falls within that personal hospitality uh, exception. You know, getting getting you know, you if if he if he, if, if someone had well, bought yeah, that a goes plane back ticket, that yeah. goes back to that part five of his of its explaining to it in the core where it says quote gifts other than food, lodging, or entertain, uh, entertainment, and then the key clause comes after that comma such as transportation that yeah. substitutes for commercial transportation. Precisely, yeah. I think it had to be disclosed. So so I think there's violation there, and and I think that that could be seen as a violation of the Ethics in Government Act as well as of the Supreme Court's ethics rules. And I'm, I'm certain that the real estate transaction, which was undisclosed, is a violation of the Ethics in Government Act. And again, that's something that can be enforced by the Justice Department. Now, I would not expect it to be enforced by the Justice Department. I really don't think Merrick Garland's going to bring a, a, a lawsuit against Thomas to get a $50,000 fine out of him. But, but I think he, he could. Um, and so, I also, I, I, so here's the thought. I don't want you to get too far. I, I don't want to yeah. stop your thought, but there yeah. was something about that. And I, I honestly want your opinion on this. It is, you know, we have these kinds of disclosure laws with these kinds of fines attached to them. But given that when we encounter these kinds of issues, and I've been thinking about this carefully, meaning that you're not going to enforce them for a variety of reasons. Do we gain something by having them, you think, Ken, or, or are they just feel-good provisions? <laughs> right? no, I, th I think we gain something by having them, but what I think we gain is the conversations that you and I and other people around the country are having right now, right? I mean, uh, there is, because he violated the law, um, you know, I, I can point out that he violated the law, right? If we, if we didn't have that law... Um, fair. Then, fair. then we couldn't be having this conversation. So, so I, I think that's the benefit of it. There's a lot of people who are rightly convinced that he's corrupt, and he is corrupt. Um, but if we didn't have these laws, um, then you know how how would we be able to say that he's corrupt? Because you know he wouldn't have violated anything. So I, I think that that is a benefit. But I, I don't I don't you know I don't know how much extra benefit there would be um, if, if 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 the if, if if the U.S. Justice Department tried to bring a civil enforcement action right, for, right. for offenses that um, carry a maximum fine of fifty thousand dollars. Well, anyway, I, I, yeah. I, I was curious but, about that, but continue. I'm sorry yeah. to have broken so, so your. That was all I was really going to say about the law. But some other things I was going to say about the facts, which I think, again, um, 
you know, reasons that I'm quite sure this is bona fide corruption and not just technical violations, um, is that uh, first of all, although he always portrays this guy Crow like as his old friend who he's been friends with for 25 years, well, he's been on the court for more than 30 years, right? So this is this is a guy who befriended him after he was already on the court, and and I feel like just from a factual matter, if you're trying to assess you know, is this corrupt? You know, I think it looks a lot different to me, you know, that you've got someone who's on the Supreme Court and then, you know, some, you know, right-wing activist who's a big donor to a lot of right-wing causes and who, you know, wants to, um, you know, influence a Supreme Court justice with right-wing ideas who does not know this Supreme Court justice, you know, kind of, you know, finds a way to ingratiate himself with the guy and start, um, you know, cultivating a friendship where he can bring him around. And, and, you know, following up on that, you know, it wasn't like these two were just the only people on the yacht. You know, even people like Leonard Leo, who runs the Federal Society, you know, were there, you know, on the yacht with these guys. So he, he was definitely being, being taken on a yacht by someone who's a, a, a right-wing uh, major political donor. And other people on the, on the yacht were people who were part of that world who wanted to, you know, use those opportunities to kind of have access to Justice Thomas, to talk to him about their ideas, to, to cultivate him. And I think that's an extremely corrupting influence, especially when you're talking about him wanting to keep it secret. And, uh, um, and, and uh, you know, and, and that these are all people that he only met because he's a Supreme Court justice. These are not his old friends. Uh, last thing, a less factual thing I'll point out is... Um, you know, he actually did disclose uh, these kind of um, gifts uh, um, in, in the early years when he was on the court in the 90s. And the reason he stopped disclosing them uh, is because the Los Angeles Times ran an article in 2004. Yeah, yeah. Where they, you know, went through his disclosure forms and they, they published a big article and say, look how corrupt Justice Thomas is. He's taken, you know, all these gifts from these right wingers whose ideas he propagates. And, you know, he's, he's taking zillions more gifts than all the other justices put together. And then he votes the way his friends want him to vote. Um, and, uh, um, and then because he got the negative publicity from that, which is actually the purpose of the disclosure laws, um, he just decided to respond not by stopping taking the gifts, but by stopping reporting the gifts. And, uh, um, and so, again, I, I feel like that uh, makes me confident to say he's actually corrupt. Yeah, I'm probably more willing to say, uh, even on the empirical side or on the uh, factual side, as you were talking about, that you could obviously have friendships or other things develop after the fact that you've been on the court. I mean, we're talking about people who are on the court forever. However, what le- makes me less willing to view it in that particular view is when you see that you have, well, you know, that the, the house purchase is occurring after these other purchases have occurred, right? So it's this. Um, you know, when you look at individuals, friendships and relationships, normal friendships don't involve yearly, (laughs) you know, yearly huge gifts uh, uh, over and over and repeatedly. So so the way you set that up there to say, well, if you have a friendship that emerges after you're on the court, it has to obviously be suspect. I'm going to I would potentially disagree with that. Uh, And it's not going to be surprising that you're going to be around and in the orbit of other people who think like you. But I think where even where I have that mm, more sympathetic starting point. I can't then that does not fit in any schema where you have one particular individual who is purchasing your mother's house so that he can obviously fix it up. And he's purchasing the rest of the street so that he can fix it up for her. Right. While she's living there. And then you don't report it. 
and then you know the next year and the next year and and the next year that you know again you know even on smaller scales there's i have people with whom i'm friends with uh and you know uh, there have been times where i have gotten something that would be a substantial gift but that's it might be once you know or i i give that something to somebody once in those ways i i think the more factual thing for me that says Hey, there's a problem is where you keep doing it over and over again and across different mediums, right? I I think you could even, you know, if it had always been just a trip, I think you could still have that potentiality for saying, look, there's corruption here, but there'd be a, a space to say, but this is what we always do together. But because it's coming even in these different categories, right? So in this case, I'm going to buy property from you. And in this case, you're going to come up to my resort in the, in the Northeast. And in this case, we go out to Indonesia. And in this case, right, th- I think that's another element here that makes it harder for me to, to have a positive view of what could be happening here other than, you know, Thomas doesn't want to let people recognize what he's taking and most specifically from Crow. Yeah, well, I, I, I just don't I, know. What, I, I don't know how you should read it. I just don't I don't know. I mean, take the most sympathetic position you want to start with. And I, I can't get to a positive reading of what happens here. Yeah. And I actually agree with everything you said, even including your qualification that you put on what I said, because I I also agree with you that um, it would be possible for someone who's been on the Supreme Court for more than 30 years to make bona fide friends, um, you know, who aren't just people trying to corrupt him, you know, even after he's on the court. But 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 as you I, I can see that and I know that you, you made that point. I agree with it. Um, I don't see that here. Another thing about bona fide friends is you would normally expect to see some kind of reciprocity. And, you know, I have a friend who's a top scientist at Procter and Gamble and has a lot more money than I do. And he's got a, a, a lake house up in upper Michigan. And uh it's pretty common, you know, for my wife and I sometimes to go up there and visit. And and we can't reciprocate in that way. We don't have a beach house in Michigan, but we do reciprocate sometimes by, you know, inviting them over here and taking them out to dinner and, you know, doing what we can do. And and this seems like a, a totally one-way street in terms of, you know, which way things are going here, which all again to me doesn't really look like a bona fide friendship. No, and I, I can't I can't disagree with that. And, you know, again, I was going in and, and this is an area and this is kind of the last thing I think we might want to uh, say about this. I think one of the problems with not pro-Republicans reporting, which I think was, was, was pretty phenomenal in most in most instances, um, but has been the focus on the crows and Nazi. And I, I think that was that has been like the terrible <laughs> uh, framing of this as opposed to the conversation that we're having. And that really seems to have taken up too much of the oxygen in the room. And I don't understand why that has been all of this focus when, again, the problem is on Justice Thomas's side. I mean, put aside whatever the other person. Again, I, I'm not I, I know yeah. that could be hard to do. But the problem here, as, as we're talking about, is there are ethics laws involved, right? Yeah. It, it, so it could all the intention on the other side could be beautiful and it still wouldn't make it OK. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. Again, the one thing I would say about I, I have no idea if Crow is a Nazi. And if you've looked into this and, and think that he's not, I, I'll certainly accept that. But but I um, I, I do think it, it is relevant that he is part of um, uh, uh, an American far right that um, is interested in issues that do come before the court. And, you know, I know it's been reported. I I, I think what you're saying there, I don't even think it's far right or any particular position. The answer is, is that 
he has positions he wants to advocate for. I mean, yeah. what does it matter what those positions well, are? It, it, it only he matters. Could, he yeah. could have beautiful positions we both love. And even if that was the case, it still wouldn't be okay to not report what he's no, doing. Of course, of course. Yeah, you know. The only reason I think it matters, again, I agree with what you said, but I do think it matters only because we have some evidence that he's been successful um, in influencing Justice Thomas, right? That the, oh, the so in other words, because yeah, you yeah. can, okay, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. That, 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 yeah. I mean, if it was someone who had opposite views and they were influencing a justice to have opposite views, the problem would be the same. But I'm saying, you know, it sort of gives him a motive um, for, for, for doing what he's doing, you know, that, that he is a person who has... Um, you know, seems to be a person who has strong right wing views and cares about advancing them and cares about influencing um, the way this country is governed um, and that the views that he um, uh, propagates and advances and the, the circles that he moves in, um, which includes other people that got to go on these vacations with Justice Thomas, they seem to have been successful in, um, you know, kind of uh, cu cultivating Justice Thomas because he's 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 uh, you know, he, he shares those views. And to me, that um, again, it, it looks to me like like uh, that's some additional evidence uh, that, that Thomas is being corrupted. Um, so it's not that I'm saying that right wingers should have less rights to corrupted justice than left wingers. I, I, I agree with you. That should all be the same. But I but I'm just saying I think you can look at this as some evidence that there's been some success here. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure how to analyze that. I think maybe you're taking another, uh, another piece further than I might. But I, again, I don't think it matters in the sense of the reason we have these kinds of rules is because there can be instances in which lobbying in any form for whatever reason, whether we appreciate it or not, the outcome of it is wrong in and of itself as a moral principle. And I, I, or in this case, to not understand and know that it's going down is a violation of a moral principle, which is also in this case an ethical or a, a, a legal principle. Okay, I think we're going to need to to, to leave yeah. that there. So, uh, yeah, no, I thought we were actually going to end it. when I first started investigating the story. I really thought we were going to have a lot of differences, and as as the more I learned about it, the more I thought, well, no, I don't. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we are. Um, I, yeah. So, um, yeah. So what we're going to move on to uh, next is uh, the ruling on uh, Mifepristone. Um, yes, yeah, so you can say that 10 times fast. It's kind of like some of the drugs that I, uh, I get infused. I know what they are and I can see them, but it can take a second. You get a pause. You got to read them. Uh, this past week, we've both at the end of last week and, and uh, the, the guys weren't able to get to it on the three person show last weekend. Uh, you know, we had the, the district uh, federal district court out of Texas who almost effectively had a nationwide ban. And then this, this week on Wednesday, a three-panel judge from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in a 42-page decision blocked temporarily portions of that district court uh, uh, suspension of the FDA's 2000 approval, but it did allow other aspects of the ruling to take effect uh, and widen access to the drug. So what happened here this week? This, this can be a little bit confusing when you're dealing with court things. So keep, remember that district courts, that's your trial court. That's where things happen first. You can kind of emergency orders and blocks. That what goes, that's what happens. And then on particular issues, you get panel judges at the Circuit Court of Appeal, generally three, um, unless you're on bonk. I'm going to uh, yeah, hear it uh, and, and make decisions on it. And this can happen more rapidly when you have these kinds of restraining orders that happen quickly. 
So what continues to be blocked, which I think was a little bit of a surprise for some, uh, was the extending the use of the drugs into the 10th week of pregnancy. So now it's back to seven, just as it was before. Um, Allowing retail pharmacies to dispense the drugs, eliminating the requirement for an office visit with a physician, um, allowing it to be prescribed remotely, that is telemedicine. And then finally, and this is probably the most controversial if you actually read the 42-page decision from the uh, circuit court, allowing non-physicians to prescribe it uh, and to allow for it. And then finally, uh, uh, no longer they have to continue to report non-fatal uh, ass, uh, adverse events. So the Justice Department uh, yesterday on Thursday confirmed it was going to move this issue to the Supreme Court for emergency action. Uh, and that is to end all of the blocks on all of these other issues that it had not, it had failed to lift from the federal, uh, excuse me, from the district court judge's uh, decision while the larger case moves through the federal court system. Um, Effectively, again, what the circuit court argued was that the FDA acted out of bounds by, quote, choosing to cut out doctors from the prescription and and administration uh, of the drug, end quote. And so, it's, it, and it's also worth understanding uh, what, what uh, uh, Mifeprestone is. Now, effectively what it is, is it's a drug that up to 70 days after your last menstrual period uh, can end a pregnancy from even kind of beginning by blocking a hormone called progesterone. Uh, and that is the hormone that is in ovaries that regulates your menstrual cycle. And so by changing that, you're effectively changing the ability of anything to implant in the uterine wall. That is not allowing an embryo to attach permanently. Um, now, what brought additional eyes to this case and what I was, I, I think we'll have to spend a little bit of time talking about as well, Ken, was that is as soon as the federal court ruled, although we haven't heard really follow-ups from this, a number of lawmakers argued that the FDA, that is the executive branch, should actually ignore that or any other ruling that comes from the court. Uh, Ron Wyden, uh, a Democrat from Oregon, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC, from a Democrat in New York, they both openly argued that the FDA should not just exercise its discretion as a federal agency, but that it should go one step further and not even recognize that the rules from the court exists. Uh, what Wyden and Cortez says was effectively this, uh, uh, quote, there are moments in history where Americans and their leaders must look at circumstances like this one and say enough not let's see how the appeals plot process plays out or let's hope congress can fix this uh, he would go on uh, uh, to say that there was just or excuse me she would go on then to say there was just quote an extraordinary amount of precedent end quote um, for the white house to ignore the ruling now the white house to this point has turned that down uh, and even on monday argued that that kind of uh, conversation created quote dangerous precedents end quote for any other administration to ignore federal court uh, decisions. So we kind of got these two elements here, Ken. I'll let you pick on which you want to go on. Uh, both the, uh, the decision, the, uh, the Fifth Circuit's uh, decision on that front, and then this kind of side conversation about, is there a legal possibility for the, for the executive to really be ignoring this kind of ruling, whether it agrees with it or not? Yeah, let me talk about the second one first, because I actually think that's where almost all the reporting that I've, I've uh, seen has really misunderstood how administrative law works. Um, so the, the the kind of debate that you're talking about, you know, could could the could the administration ignore this ruling, um, and, you know, or versus um, 
you know, could they exercise ordinary enforcement discretion? There's no difference. Um, there, there's literally no difference. It's, it's a, the only difference is rhetorical. There, there, there's no practical difference whatsoever. I mean, as a practical, what's actually happening right now, and it's the only possibility that could happen, um, is that the, the, the administration is saying exactly as it should say, um, that it is not ignoring a, a court order of the court. It will comply with all orders of the court. It will use the proper channels to appeal those orders. Um, you know, I, I agree with the administration that these, these are this was a frivolous order and, and it will be uh, reversed. But, you know, of, of course they have to go through that process and that's what they're doing and that's what they're saying they're doing. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the, um, the FDA is not going to bring an enforcement action against any uh, any any drug company or any pharmacy uh, or any doctor's office that um, uh, d disseminates um, mifepristone, uh, they're just not, you know. And so whether whether you call that um, ignoring a court order or whether you call that exercising enforcement discretion, uh, you know, it, it, it's just a label. It's just rhetorical. There's literally no difference. I guess I I think there's more than just a rhetorical difference there, and I think I would go back to when we had the Bush administration, the the, the George W. Bush administration, uh, using these kinds of discretionary powers to advance a unitary presidency, and I think that the the kind of language that you talk about in terms of we're ignoring court orders, and 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 when I when I when I see individuals like AOC say that, I can't help but just laugh a little bit internally and go, yeah, you would have been the first person to be shouting about how terrible it was about what the Bush administration was doing, uh, which again I agree with the Biden with the Biden administration is 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 doing on this instead, but. I mean, I, I but they're doing they're, both. That's my point. They're doing both. They're, 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 they are following all the proper legal channels. And of course, that's the right thing to do. But they're also not going to enforce. I mean, let, let me give you a less loaded example than the, the Bush administration's war on terror. Let's talk about the Supreme Court's decision in uh, Gonzalez versus Raich about 15 years ago. So when the when the um, when the when when the states started the process of, of legalizing uh, marijuana, you still had this problem that. Um, uh, the Federal Controlled Substances Act um, has has not decriminalized marijuana. So, so marijuana, uh, small amounts of possession and, and use are illegal everywhere in the United States under the Controlled Substances Act, and 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 that was challenged in the Supreme Court's case of Gonzalez versus Raich, and the Supreme Court uh, upheld the Controlled Substances Act and said that um, the, the Controlled Substances Act is valid and it's enforceable everywhere in the United States. And since then, you know, every president has just you know not brought um, enforcement actions. In fact, every president has made an executive order saying that the Justice Department uh, shouldn't bring enforcement actions against small users of marijuana um, in places uh, where it would be legal under state law. And, you know, nobody's screaming about that, meaning, oh, they're, they're just ignoring the Supreme Court's decision in Gonzalez versus Raich. You know, we're, we're just looking at that as kind of an ordinary and relatively uncontroversial and most people would say salutary uh, exercise of enforcement discretion. Um, but it's exactly the same thing as ignoring the decision in Gonzalez versus Raich. It just depends how you want to talk about it rhetorically. Well, I mean, again, I think the fundamental difference is to suggest that in a legal universe in which there is more things that can be prosecuted than can be prosecuted, determining the hierarchy in which you're going to prosecute is fundamentally different than the theory that the executive office can, in certain moments of history, 
say, actually, no, I disagree with the, with, with, uh, the legality of this, and ergo on that basis, regardless of its preference level in, in my administration, will never be considered law. I, I, th- th- I think those are fundamentally different things. Yeah, I think they're only rhetorically different things. You know, I, I don't think they're fundamentally different things. Well, but again, I mean, okay, so if, if I have, if I can't enforce everything because of the nature of the system, and so I'm, I'm prioritizing what I think is most important, you think that, so that prioritization is no different than me coming out and saying, actually, this thing, you know, the lowest of my priorities here is terrible, wrong, and ergo no longer constitutional, and we're going to move forward from that point of view. Yeah. And so, Trey, um, we got interrupted there for a second because the guy next door was cutting the lawn. But now that I've got quiet again, um, the other issue I was going to say about this is that um, separate and apart from the kind of practical considerations I was talking about, uh, even from a standpoint of constitutional theory, um, there's a big difference between um, uh, the executive branch doing something that a court has said is illegal um, versus um, not doing something that uh, you know a court has said would be legal to do, and many many presidents um, have argued um, that that one of the checks and balances in our constitution is something that's sometimes called independent executive review or is sometimes called um, departmentalism, um, where the idea is that you know even if a court has has said that something is 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 constitutional. Um, the presidents don't have to enforce it. So so for instance, um, when when Jefferson ran for president against Adams in in the seventeen uh, in the eighteen hundred election, um, uh, Jefferson argued that on his understanding of the First Amendment, the Alien and Sedition Acts were unconstitutional. And even though um, Adams had enforced the Alien and Sedition Acts, and and even though courts had entered judgments and and convicted people under those acts. Um, Jefferson said, if, if, if I'm elected, I'll be duty bound by my oath of office, both to pardon everybody who's been convicted under those acts and to um, uh, stop enforcing those acts, because I think it would be unconstitutional to enforce those acts. And, and, and that is usually considered um, not to pose any threats to the rule of law, um, because, you know, the court, if the court said that something was illegal, well, then the president shouldn't do it. Um, but if, if the court says that something is legal, but the president still thinks it's illegal, well, then the president also shouldn't do it. And, and, and that's actually the situation we're in here, right, is that, um, you know, the, 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 the judge would be telling the executive branch, you know, it, it's legal for you to enforce against my, my Pristone under, under, the, um, under, under uh, an interpretation of the, um, uh, of the Food and Drug and Cosmetics Act. That, that that court came up with and that that court thinks is constitutional. Um, but, but, but it's still perfectly within the purview of the executive, which has to enforce to say, well, under, under our uh, interpretation of the act, it doesn't cover that. And even if it, if it did, then that would be unconstitutional because it would violate uh, the right to contraception, which is still uh, protected under uh, Griswold. And the court did not overrule that in Dobbs. So, you know, so it's, it's considered actually a kind of normal attribute of our, of our checks and balances and separation of powers that, you know, even where a court says that the executive branch can enforce some law, um, if, if the executive branch thinks that the, the statute doesn't authorize enforcement or that, author, or that enforcement would be unconstitutional, even if the statute did authorize it, it, it's normal to think that the executive branch doesn't have to enforce it. 
Well, before we kind of leave this one aside and move forward, what about on that first issue then, Ken, on the underlying question of the change, especially where the circuit court was focusing on, which was the idea that it basically said, look, you're just making this unique in, in terms of choosing to cut doctors out of the prescription process. So you can still act, but you, you've left your discretionary bounds when you allow drugs to not be uh, uh, done by doctors. What do you think about the fifth court uh, no, th- decision that, on that? A, that's an idiotic rule. I mean, for one thing, the, 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 the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act's been around since the 30s. There's never, ever, ever been a single case before where uh, a, a drug attained um, uh, FDA approval and then a court uh, re- reversed it. That's just not within the purview of what courts can do. And in terms of the thing about not prescribing, I mean, Tylenol is considerably more dangerous than Mifepristone. My, my, my and, you know, you don't need a prescription or a doctor to get uh, Tylenol. Um, you know, a- allowing um, drugs to be prescribed, to be sold over the counter without a prescription, or in this case, to be prescribed by a nurse practitioner. Um, th- those judgments are all scientific judgments made by FDA based on trade-offs between efficacy and safety. And this is an extraordinarily safe drug. Okay, so I think we're going to need to pause there on that. And when we come back in just a moment, uh, we're going to take on the document leak and Discord, which is, which is fascinating for supporters. So we'll, we're going to take that up in just a moment. In any other week, and this would have undoubtedly been the biggest story, but here we are in story number three, and it need, it's going to take some time for us to get through this. So on Discord, yeah, that's right. The same Discord that we, the politics guys, use for supporters to interface with us, which, by the way, you can join by heading to the show notes right now and becoming a supporter. We were talking about this on, uh, on Discord beforehand. A number of document images began surfacing on particular channels. And what ended up happening was approximately 50 different documents, uh, oftentimes photographs of documents, were released that were labeled secret or top secret. The documents include information about the United States' view on Ukrainian forces and about the support the United States has provided to Ukraine. It also includes daily intelligence reports on uh, Israel's um, Assad spy service, which I knew that you would be interested in, Ken. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, the most sensitive uh, appear to be leaked are those combined, uh, compiled by the CIA that were intercepted conversations with allied governments. uh, And and that obviously is a big deal. And then this, I mean, equally with that was apparently we have some intercepts into channels in the Russian government, specifically the Russian military. And so, so all of this is really big. And there's a lot here. It's hard to find all of it. So just to kind of quickly kind of round up the biggest items that I found in these documents, you know, first, we have uh, kind of the blunt assessment of Ukraine's military strength after a year of heavy fighting. And a big part of that is what appears to be upcoming weak spots in the Ukrainian air defenses as a result of ammunition missile supplies for uh, uh, ground air missile defense. So that's huge. And, and, and going during the uh, conflict, this could influence the way that the Ru- Russian forces might uh, uh, react to all of this. Um, it also describes uh, the British surveillance plane that was being shot down off the coast of Crimea, which apparently was a much deeper and more dangerous incident than within was uh, publicly acknowledged. Additionally, there appears to be deep infiltration of the Russian military um, 
It's so much so that the United States has been able to warn Ukraine of upcoming attacks uh, and even getting into the Central Military Agency. There are also documents that appear to contain details about new surveillance uh, technology in the United States, uh, which includes really quick, uh, what are effectively like time series videos that allow you to see things unfolding in near real time. Um, There also appears to be some information on technology disruption from Russia, which I wasn't clear on, but it's a big deal. Uh, there are question. There is information about Turkey and NATO. There's information about South Korea, um, and like I said, the the part about Mossad, which you know we always end up taking international stories, and and I know Israel is a big one. Um, you know, Assad apparently trying to get involved with protests over the Israeli government's proposed judicial reforms. So there's a lot here. And, and as time has gone on, you know, as soon as I would write some of this up and feel like I got my hands around it, I would learn something else new, have to look at some new documents. I think it's likely that we're going to continue to understand more and more of what these leaks have really uh, uh, brought out. So those are just some of the biggest. Then the other thing that happened uh, not long before we recorded the show was on Thursday, uh, Jax Tecria, a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman, was arrested in connection to the document leak. And this is really bizarre. Uh, uh, Attorney General Garland confirmed he was uh, arrested in connection with the probe. There's no more other information. Now, for those of you who don't quite understand these titles, his role and rank and location they don't really explain anything, right? There, there, there is no universe in which, under normal circumstances, uh, this individual could be the person who got his hands on all of these things. Uh, but yet, he's the one who's currently in custody, which, which really raises far more questions than it answers. Ken, there's so much that we, could, we can talk about here, both in terms of what it might mean for these leaks to come out and also in terms of what we, th- we think is going to be the outcome. I don't even know where to start by asking you a question. So I just thought I'm going to start by just saying, where did you see? I was just trying to compile it all. Where, where yeah. did you see being the most important of this? Well, uh, and, and what are your thoughts on that? Well, once again, uh, I, I, I think the politics that guys listeners are going to be uh, glad they listened today because I, I'm going to voice a perspective that I also have not heard anywhere in, in the media. Um, I don't believe that any of this is authentic. Um, I, I don't believe there was a leak. I don't believe this kid was the leaker. I don't believe these documents are authentic. Um, I, I think it's entirely a, a, a Pentagon counterintelligence operation against Russia and that these are in, inauthentic documents. OK, so why is that the case? Because oftentimes that kind of per, uh, uh, position, you know, and this, this actually is kind of worth talking about. You know, I'm going to I'm taking it seriously because yes. it's us. But, you know, if, if somebody off the street said that about normal things, we'd oftentimes kind of put them into the conspiracy. I wouldn't say I mean, they're not immediately conspiracy theorists, but we'd at least say, hey, you've got a higher bar maybe to oh, come up. So absolutely. talk through. Yeah. yeah. So talk yeah. through us why it comes over that. that bar. Yeah, I, I think I've got a very high bar. But you know how interested I am in Cold War espionage. I, I do. Well, I mean, anybody who listens to this show yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or who has pay, or who's read even half of the books you've recommended yes. on this show. Great. Well, it's, it's following the pattern of a kind of standard um, disinformation or deception operation of which there's, a, a you know, a tremendously big history of these kind of operations, right? So, you know, you talked about a few aspects that make me say this. So 
One is, you know, if you if you look at what's in the documents, even some of the things you just recited, you know, this idea that the um, the, the Russian government and the Russian military are, are very heavily penetrated by espionage agents um, from from America and from Ukraine, um, which is one of the facts you recited. Yes. Well, that, yeah. that's certainly a, a fact that we would actually like uh, the Russians to believe um, if it weren't true. Right. Uh, you know, you'd want them to, you know, tear themselves up with mole hunts or, or think that, you know, everything that they've, they've done is compromised. Um, so that's kind of the kind of thing. Some of the some of these more specific kind of um, uh, tactical uh, inf information and things like that, um, you know, you would want them to, you know, you'd want them to put some stock in uh, information that seems to be tactical, but is actually um, disinformation. You know, the, the, the invasion of Normandy that uh, turned that, that that turned the war against Hitler in World War II, you know, that, that was able to happen because um, using similar disinformation tactics, um, West, Western counterespionage had managed to convince uh, um, uh, the, the Nazis that the invasion was coming and it was coming, you know, at Calais, not at not at Normandy. And then Very it was led by General Patton. And General Patton actually did lead a, a decoy uh, attack on, on Calais, although it wasn't really an attack. And, and the Germans were, you know, up there, which helped the Normandy at, attack succeed. So I think these are kind of standard Pentagon tactics. Another kind of, you know, another thing that you talked about, which is another evidence for this theory, I think, is that there is no reason that a, a kid in the um, uh, 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 Massachusetts Air National Guard yeah. <laughs> uh, fairly low level, you know, would have access to any of this kind of information. In fact, the, 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 the computer networks that are inside the Pentagon don't even connect to the Internet, don't connect to networks that go outside the Pentagon. There's there's levels of top secret information here that could not possibly be accessed or shouldn't be able to possibly be accessed from an Air National Guard station in Massachusetts. Um, uh, you know, an, another thing about it is um, it's it's a. Uh, um, when it first emerged, when it, when the Washington Post first broke this story a few days before they identified, you know, who who the leaker was, um, the 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 Pentagon didn't um, deny it, right? They 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 sort of acknowledged it and said that they're looking into it. You know, if it was a true leak, they would have denied it. Denying it would be the right thing to do. You know, saying that it's inauthentic would be the right thing to do. But but they never did that. You know, and so I, I think that that kind of has all the the markers of a of a of a deception operation, and uh, um, you know I I think that you know this the 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 uh, the way they ran it by you know having this guy kind of put this stuff out there um, on this you know probably the other people that were on that network he was putting it out to that that Discord site where he had like twenty or thirty disaffected far right uh, teenagers, you know, you could pretty much bank on the fact that, you know, if you tell all of them, you know, don't, don't, don't pass this along to anyone else, you know, that, that some of them are eventually going to pass it along to someone else and it's going to get out there. And so it's kind of creating a kind of um, uh, framework with a, a legend where there seems to be some bonafide explanation for the leak. You know, here's how it happened. This guy got it. He had access to this information. He put it on this network, which he thought only his friends were going to look at. He couldn't realize that some of them were going to then, you know, keep retransmitting it elsewhere. Things got out of control, you know, so and, and so and I think by also tying it to, um, you know, the, the, the kid, uh, um, you know, what we're learning about him from from media reports about him is that he's, you know, sort of part of very far right movements, racist, uh, anti-Semitic, things like that. And that's like exactly the kind of legend you would want to build if, if you were thinking um, you want the Russians to actually believe this. Right. Because there, there's movements like that in America. And those are the kind of people that would do this. So I, I you know, it, to me, it's just sort of everything sort of fits perfectly. 
with with a, the standard way that a disinformation operation is run. And and I do think, especially when when you know both when there were um, uh, um, no denials of the authenticity of the documents, and then when there was this kind of manhunt where they didn't sort of instantly already know who it was, even when the Washington Post was already talking to people who who knew who it was, and the law enforcement still hadn't you know figured out who it was. You know that that just seemed uh, um, just too implausible to me. So what might so what might be some of the then as we look down the road the ability to see hey are, were you right about this or not so uh, you know so for example if you know there is no missile shortage could that be evidence in favor of hey look this the, you know yeah keep sending the planes you're eventually going to get through right? yeah. <laughs> one of those guys that they do you, do you think there's going to be a way maybe to then look at that and say okay ah. This seems like it falls in with that theory, or is this one of those ones where it might be fuzzier than that? Yeah, I mean, it might take a long time. So, you know, we know today that disinformation uh, given to the Germans distracted some of their troops up to up to up to Calais, and that's why they didn't have enough troops at Normandy. Um, you know, it was some time uh, before that that all came out, and of course, we had a very total kind of victory in World War II, which probably sped up you know how fast uh, information like that could be revealed uh, afterwards. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing I would watch for is what, what actually happens to this kid who's been arrested. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I'm thinking that these proceedings are going to drag out for a while. Like if, if he's, if he's, um, you know, a, a, a voluntary and active par- participant in a Pentagon disinformation campaign, um, then, you know, I think he'll wind up, you know, in, in you know, to make the disinformation campaign work, you know, he'll have to be, um, convicted of crimes, um, to, you know, to make it look legitimate. But I think if he winds out up, you know, you know, after that, you know, getting out much sooner than his sentence might have um, suggested or something like that, you know, that 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 could be some evidence that it was a, it was a plan all along. In other words, serve the rest of your time in the military out in jail and then, oh, look, you're out for good behavior effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that, that um, that would kind of indicate because I do think he'll be convicted if he'll, he would be convicted no matter whether it was a, a, a bona fide crime the way it appears or whether it was a disinformation uh, campaign by the by the Pentagon. Um, you know, you'd have to convict him. But but I think, um, you know, you can watch, you know, if he gets if he gets sentenced to 15 years in prison, you know, but then, you know, he, he you know, serves. A couple of years, you know, and in, in uh, you know, country club prison, and then just let, gets let go. Um, you know, it might be, uh, yeah, something that um, you know, you might say, well, maybe there was some deal all along there. So now, here's my next question. Then that that kind of falls into that. Why? It, you know, so if you're doing it from this point of view, so I'm just I'm trying to be yeah. the opposite view for oh, a minute because yeah. I haven't thought about it. So, for example, why pick this kid that raises so many flags on the front of like, how in the world does he get it? Why not pick more mid-level, right? I mean, because again, doesn't that potentially tip your hand? Oh, well, we're done. We're done investigating this now. This kid who should have never had access to it through magic has access to it. Uh, Finished. Wouldn't you have wanted there to be a little bit more another element or somebody who's more plausibly linked to it? Or what do you think about that as a comeback? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I I don't um, I don't have all the answers, but I of course. uh, course, But I think it's uh, um, yeah, it it, it may. um, I think I think it it fits into um, a narrative. Right. I mean, you know, ever since the January 6th. And, you know, we've also had like these far right attacks on different kind of uh, electric grids and things like that. You know, I, I think the, the Russians have cultivated and, and believe, you know, that we have this um, 
you know, kind of um, militant um, fifth column inside the United States that they are cultivating and developing. And so I think they would they would find it uh, plausible. Um, that, that somebody who's part of that would would, would do something like this. So, so maybe I, it's more of trying to fit into that narrative than rather something that we would potentially buy, in other words. Right, right. That's kind of would be my answer on that. I see. Yeah. Hmm. So then, I mean, maybe another element we might look at to try to, 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 to test your hypothesis then would be, you know, you, we obviously, we get a lot of Ukrainian uh, details. But we also get some of these kind of bigger name dropping things like Mossad, like South Korea. Uh, do you would the continued diplomatic side from those countries help us guess it to the answer uh, of the accuracy of your thesis? In other words, do you think how they continue to respond to, it, especially the, the especially the Mossad stuff? What do you think about that? Yeah, well, you know, I think so a disinformation campaign to be effective, you know, has to have some things in it that look as though we we wouldn't want those things to be disclosed. Right. right? So, you know, so, you know, that otherwise, if, if it only included things that looked as though, oh, yeah, that's what we'd want them to think, then they're never going to believe that it's legit. Um, and in terms of like all the stuff like like us, um, you know, spying on our allies and things like that, um, I don't I don't think it's as damning as it might seem, because they all know that, you know, every, every one of these countries knows that they're spied on by, by, the, by the United States, by all their allies. We, they, they spy on us, too. You know, we had this, you know, Israel, you name, I mean, the, they had Pollard, you know, who was here spying on us. Right, went, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's I think I think it's the kind of thing where, um, you know, the, the, the goal of putting that kind of stuff in there would be, well, you try to convince the Russians. Um, you know, this might be an authentic leak because the, the U.S. wouldn't have wanted to purposely let that dirty laundry air out. But um, but yet, you know, the laundry, the dirty laundry we're letting air out might not be that 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 bad because it might be stuff that our allies actually already know. So you make it a little bit weaker as a result so that allies aren't upset effectively. Yeah. Or even if they are upset a little bit, you know, there's a cost benefit um, analysis here, right? Like, yeah, yeah if, 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 if it's if it's going to take breaking a few eggs, you know, to, to make the omelet, you know, then maybe you break a few eggs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to be honest uh, I, I, that I was not in any way expecting that to be your only here on the politics guys take. Uh, and so, you know, I was kind of thinking through that as you as we're talking about that. So. Now I'm not going to be able to look at it without thinking, is he right? Is this evidence for that? Uh, see, that's going to be my new lens. <laughs> yeah, well, and just, just to get a little further out into conspiracy theory, and I'm not usually a conspiracy theorist, but only in the area of professional espionage, I do like to think about these things a lot. Um, you know, it could, you know, if I'm wrong about it being a U.S. Pentagon uh, disinformation operation, that doesn't mean it's not a disinformation operation from some foreign intelligence service. And it could be Ukrainian and, it, you know, Ukrainians could have planted this as a disinformation operation here. And, and it could be. Um, you know, you know, any, anybody who has an interest in, in, in the, that conflict um, could have could have tried to run a disinformation operation like this. Yeah. And, and, and you know, that is one of the things where it can be difficult to get at. Uh, you forget about the. Technology has certainly made the reaches of those kinds of influence campaigns radically different than, say, they were. You know, you were talking about D-Day, for example. 
but you know, you're not talking about mannequins anymore, or <laughs> yeah. right. But <laughs> so D-Day wasn't just mannequins. It was no, also no, no, turned, no. I know. They I just turned a lot yeah. of the Germans that they caught. So that was another. Well, aspect they also of had it. all those fake documents that they tried to effectively, you know, right. hand, yeah, not hand documents. over, but yeah. Yeah. And if they picked up German spies in England, they'd hold them in prison and, and make them act like they weren't in prison and that they were still reporting the stuff they'd been learning. But by then it would all be false, false information that was fed to them by their by their British captors and, and things like that. So there's a lot of ways that these disinformation operations get carried out. And, you know, there's, you know, very skilled professionals who plan all this stuff. So to me, like, I don't try to be a conspiracy theorist when we're talking about everyday politics type stuff. But we do have counter espionage capabilities. In, in our military whose goal is to plot this kind of stuff and that's their job and that's what they do. So I, I don't think you can rule it out. Yeah, and I think the other thing that makes this different, I think it's again worth noting for those listening is, is it's when you, we're posing it in ways in which there can be evidence to be brought against it, right? So, you know, if, if you had a theory that said, look, no matter what the evidence was, it has to be a counter espionage, right? That's a different kind. <laughs> and I yeah. think that's sometimes where you have this cross where you're interacting with people who are like, look, man, look at the strings. No matter what you tell me, it has to be this. And the answer is, well, look, there could be scenarios in, when, in which duplicitousness happens. And, and I don't think any of us ever disagree with that. The fundamental thing that kind of takes you into true conspiracy theory is when the outcome has to be what you think it is, regardless of any of the evidence that ultimately gets supplied, as opposed to saying, here is some evidence in favor of this hypothesis, but I am open to the possibility that it's wrong. And you know, that, that is, you know, I think that's the key difference. We, I think, as a matter of fact, it was about a year ago, we did conspiracy theories. Remember the book? Uh, yeah. It would have been last summer. That, we did, it was last summer. Yeah. Um, because I... <laughs> True story. Uh, write in if you're interested in this. Uh, I have an acquaintance. Uh, he actually got really upset with that show, Ken. Um, and he is yeah, he I don't want to give away. I don't want to give away who he is because you know, he hasn't agreed to do anything exactly. But he had kind of quasi agreed to come on the show because he thought that we weren't down the rabbit hole. He actually does have a, a master's degree in history, um, but is. We'll just we'll just call it generalized conspiracy theorist, uh, uh, and was very upset with us, uh, you know, that we'd been duped uh, by our scientific training and by our legal training. <laughs> and I almost had him come on the show so we could have this kind of conversation. But the more we kind of had a conversation back and forth, uh, it became obvious that that might have been maybe a, a, a difficult show to manage. <laughs> and yeah. So then other things came up. But maybe, you know, maybe sometime, maybe we should have a true conspiracy theorist on the show. Um, it's hard to do that. But anyway, so I think what we need to move on to then, uh, Ken, is what to move away from. And I think in this case, it's not so much really a conspiracy, which you're saying we'll move away from counter espionage possibilities right. <laughs> uh, uh, to something a little bit more tangible, but no more or less explosive. Uh, and that was the expelled Tennessee uh, House representative members uh, uh, and then uh, reinstatement of one. Uh, so last week, one of the things that uh, was talked about by uh, uh, our new uh, host, Ryan, and by uh, Jay and by Mike was the shooting in uh, Tennessee and what had happened and gone there in that school. And they had a conversation about that. And we're not going to try to 
rehash that. Uh, I know, you know, Ken, you and I, we have talked a lot about some of that policy, and I'm sure we'll have opportunities to talk about it again. It's the aftermath, though, that they didn't really have an opportunity to get into. And, and, and what happened in the aftermath of their conversation uh, was the State House of Tennessee. There was an, a, a big number of protesters who showed up. Uh, to the House kind of demanding action uh, on uh, gun control, weapon access, et cetera. And so during that, there was, uh, again, depending on how you view it, there was either strong and veriferous protest uh, or there was a disruption of the rules. Uh, And so three members of the House engaged in breaking the rules uh, uh, with uh, some of these protesters to speak heavily uh, against and in favor of gun control. And in the wake of that, then, uh, uh, those three members were brought up uh, to be expelled for violating the Tennessee State House rules. Uh, And then what makes this additionally controversial, though, then, uh, is, is that only two of the three individuals uh, end up being ultimately expelled. Uh, uh, one is a white woman, two are African-American men, and it's the two African-American men uh, who end up being expelled. Uh, and then as of, and again, I, I don't know what will happen. Things will change from when we record this. Uh, but as of, we, as of recording on April 14th, at least, uh, one individual was reinstated uh, uh, by the city, the city of Nashville. Uh, and so that's where we sit at right this moment. And I know this is actually something that you already did some work on. Uh, you also do work on Trash Flow Radio. And so <laughs> you had already done some of this. And it was funny because I, I don't think you realize that I actually do listen to some of the stuff that you do, <laughs> oh, <I didn't> know. <laughs> which is why you, you guys are actually kind of doing a whole little thing with like some gear and stuff. Uh, and, you know, maybe I was getting too country for you, you know, <laughs> and recommending some trucker hats. But uh, I know you, you'd, you've, you've kind of talked about this. And of course, in the wake of all this, we have Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris coming down and basically saying, look, this is, this is democracy. You can't just throw people out because of minor uh, violations of the rules. You're doing this for kind of racist reasons. Uh, and so I, I already on this front, uh, you know, know your positions on this, Ken. But for the politics guys, listeners, why don't you kind of then take from here? Uh, 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 why is this the end of democracy? <laughs> well, I think democracy. I think democracy is going to win out in this matter, actually. But uh, oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, so, but, we're, but, but, we're always yeah. being pessimistic. Okay, so give us the positiveness. Democracy. Well, I means. mean, it took no time at all for the county commissions in um, in, in uh, Memphis and Nashville to reappoint these same guys to their um, to their own seats as the interim. So <clears throat> when they get thrown out uh, by by the vote of the Tennessee legislature, the the county the counties uh, have to then. Point, appoint someone to hold the position on an interim basis until the special election can be held. And they both were reappointed back to hold the seats on an interim basis. So they're going to be back in their seats next week. And uh, and then they will they will have well, to one go. already has because he's, he's already had uh, even a speech on the floor. He had sworn in already. And the other yeah. one's going to be sworn in because um, because the same thing happened a couple of days later in Memphis. And uh, and then they are going to have to go through the mechanics of uh uh, running, running for those seats in, in special elections because the the seats are still technically vacant seats that they are filling in on an interim basis, but um, but they'll they'll easily sail through the special elections. So you know the 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 amount of time that they were out of their seats would end up you know being a week or so, and uh, um, the the 
I think the great um, benefit um, of, of the whole country getting to watch this whole thing unfold. Um, uh, and, you know, certainly, although the Republicans, if they wanted to, they could just kick them right back out again. But I think they learned enough of a political lesson about that, that they're, they're not going to try that again. Um, I would say democracy came out on top in, in this particular uh, scuffle. Yeah, in, in all honesty, I mean, the, the coming from a different point of view, there was a very different but a kerfuffle in the Oklahoma legislature re- recently that had some similar overtones uh, here in Oklahoma. What ended up happening uh, was there was an LGBTQ rally at the uh, state house, which is obviously here in Oklahoma City itself. Um, and full disclosure, I know individuals on both sides. So both individuals who are who are part of the protest movement and individuals who are on the state house side as a result of, of what I do here at the university. Uh, so just full disclosure, I know people on both sides. There you go. Um, and so uh, what ended up happening in that particular incident uh, was everything with, with I mean, again, lots of heatedness uh, uh, surrounding that for a variety of reasons. We don't have to get all into the details. Uh, but at one point, some of the um, the protest, protesters ended up throwing things, some water bottles at a particular member of Congress. Um, and uh, this particular couple is then one of the members is arrested. The other goes away and ends up hiding inside of one of uh, the House members. Uh, chambers and that member wouldn't let police officers come in. Uh, And so there was this whole kind of rule scuffle about that. But, you know, even here where you have Republicans that dominate the legislature and this individual is an African, a non-binary African-American in the in the on the who was also a, a House member. They, they didn't throw her out. They didn't expel her. They just removed her for some uh, committees for violating some of the rules. And that seems like if you really were going to be honest about, OK, look, you're not supposed to violate the rules. Fine. You're going to lose some committee seats or something. It, that seems like it'd be the, that would have been the better way to go with this. What do you think about that? Yeah, totally. In fact, I mean, even, you know, just so we can get into this a little deeper, I, I did support uh, the when U.S. Congress stripped Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, of her committee assignments. Um, I, I did support that. Um, and and but but yet, you know, they didn't try to strip her of her seat or expel her from the Congress. Those are very different things. Yeah, Those very are very different, different things, things. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that's the thing here is that if you if you. Um, if you strip a member of commit from committees, you're basically saying, you know, this member can't really function productively in this body. Um, but, but if you if you actually expel the member, you've you've disenfranchised all the voters um, in the district that voted for that member. So it's it's a it's a very different kind of thing. You know, Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene, when she was removed from committee assignments, I think that was helpful to every committee that didn't get saddled with her. But it didn't disenfranchise her constituents because it, she still could vote on every bill. She still could make floor speeches on every bill when they came to the floor. Um, she just didn't you know get to participate um, in, in the process, which she would have only sabotaged, of, of actually bringing bills to the floor. So I think that would be, uh, you know, the, the right kind of response to a, a serious violation of the rules. I don't happen to think this was a serious violation of the rules, so I don't think that response would have been merited. But I think that's something that, um, you know, reasonable people could differ on. And it wouldn't have seemed to me like an assault on democracy if they had sought to strip these guys of, of committee assignments. But it, I, I think it can't be seen as anything other than an assault on democracy if they try to disenfranchise the um, African-American communities in, in Memphis and, and Nashville 
by not giving them any representation in the legislature because they say there was a breach of decorum on the on the part of their their, their elected members. Yeah, I, I agree. So again, I, I think this is a case of where I think Oklahoma kind of did the right thing. And I think Tennessee, like you're saying, you'd have to think about that. And there could be questions of like, where does that decorum, you know, what kind of punishment should there or should there not be for those kinds of breaches of decorum? That's an open question. Um, but yeah, the yep. idea that you're just going to throw them out, that's a whole different, that, that's, that, that's a very, <laughs> very know, different thing. That's a One very different thing. thing. It's, it's, it's not even, it's not even qualitatively on the same scale, right? You know, you've moved into a whole different, it's, it's categorically different, I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Because it, because it leaves a lot of people unrepresented. Exactly. And, and, yeah. And, and I, I also think another difference between the Marjorie Taylor Greene episode in Congress and, and this episode in Tennessee is um, both the U.S. Congress and the Tennessee legislature, and I believe every state legislature, have ethics committees. So in, in Marjorie Taylor Greene's case, uh, you know, when she was accused of violations of the ethics rules, she did have due process in front of an ethics committee uh, before they took the vote to strip her of her committee assignments. And that was something that an ethics committee recommended. Um, but here there was nothing like that. It was just extremely summary. Like, you now, know, and, yeah. And, and I will say just having done a little bit of state and local, not and I don't know this about Tennessee and I should have looked this up. Not every state does ethics committees in that way. So, for example, in the in Oklahoma. We don't precisely have an ethics committee because there are things that determine whether you're you can be a member or not. Uh, and they're kind of hard and fast rules that don't get a hearing. So, for example, in Oklahoma, if you're convicted of a felony, you're removed from office and cannot run instantaneously. You don't get an appeal. Right. There is no other right. process. So some states do or don't. It, they don't all well, quite mimic Congress in that way. I don't know about Tennessee, though, just well, to be clear. I, I get that. But in this case, the only thing that was alleged to be violated was a, was a, a rule of the of the House itself. So, there, you know, I think if you're saying if there's a statute that says felons can't serve, um, you know, then then you don't need a you don't need a committee to sort that out. But right, um, right. If, 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 but if it, but if it's a if it's if it's a house rule and there's a dispute about whether the house rule was even violated or not or 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 what what would be the appropriate remedy for a violation of the house rule there certainly ought to be some kind of um internal well, this, process yeah cuz in this case you didn't there was really no dispute that there was a violation of the house rule because all three members said yeah i violated the house rule because this is such an important issue and i get yeah, yeah, yeah. so you you wouldn't really have a, a dispute of facts your right. only question would be a dispute of what ought to be the ramification be of that, right? Because in this case, yeah. you know, no one's saying, hey, I didn't do this. Instead, they're saying, of course, I did this. I had to do this because yeah. that's how important this is. So the question, I think, with them. So that's what I was saying. I'm not sure yeah. even if, if you had. Process, yeah, because yeah, I'm not sure what you go in that juncture. What would your generally your ethics committee is trying to determine the facts well, but also the cases. recommendations. I mean, that was the same with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like she she said the things that she said, which were, you know, threats of violence against the other members. And the words that she said, she said on TV and everybody could see what they were. Well, and one but, of them but, was in the hallway, wasn't it? To um, yeah, uh, to uh, um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, no, no, no. It was no. After that. Uh, oh. oh, my goodness. Remember, they moved offices. Um, who was it? Oh, my goodness. Ken, this oh. is bothering me. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, I, I know one of the other four who was in the squad, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I, I can't I can't remember exactly who. But the point is, there I'm wasn't so sorry. Really, yeah, that's yeah, all the point. It wasn't it wasn't a factual dispute. It was really much more of a dispute about what should be done about it. And, you know, her her um, her accusers said she should be stripped of her committee assignments. And she said she shouldn't. And she she did have an opportunity to make those arguments in front of an ethics committee that then made a recommendation. And, and you know, I, I do believe Tennessee must have something like this because in that speech that you heard me play on Trash Flow Radio, yes, which, just, yeah. which Justin well, With the music gave, and everything, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the speech that he gave as he was being voted out of the Tennessee legislature, he raised that point and he, he said, um, you know, this should be referred to an ethics committee. So I, I take it that there must be some kind of ethics committee that it can be referred to. And, uh, and that would just, slow, it would just slow things down a little bit, even, even if there's not a lot in dispute. And I think you made a very fair point there that, the facts here are really not in dispute. But even if there's not, just the, the having an ethics committee slow thing, slows down any kind of, um, you know, rush to judgment or pitchfork with, you know, mob with pitchforks or anything like that lets people take a breath and think a little bit harder. Yeah, and I think that's fair. But, you know, you get into, and I, I think it's easy to forget, you get into these, put aside whatever the particular triggering is, instances, you have individuals who are who are really upset in the moment about whatever, and especially in local government where you can get so close. This isn't something that happens at the federal level because you can't really, you can't protest close to Congress, right? You can't get into Congress and protest. But in most uh, uh, state capitals, you can protest inside the building, right? So you get this kind of very kind of charge. And that's not necessarily, I'm not arguing that's necessarily a bad thing. Please be careful. But it does lead to you have individuals who are close and you're right, then you can have charged responses because, you know, you're human, right? You're, you're, you're walking through that and yeah, you're angry and you're either for good or bad reasons. It doesn't matter. There's anger there. And I think that could be a reason to think about. I don't know the rules. You know, we'd have to look at that, but to say you need to have a pause because you know, you're going to have charged kinds of circumstances, but okay. Well, Ken, I think what we should probably do is move on to our last story of the day, and that is a pair. Uh, I mean, I, I guess if I say former President Trump, we should all just at this point assume that there's a court case, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, two former President Trump uh, uh, court cases. Uh, and so we have two different ones that develop this week. One is a follow up to a case that we had actually already gotten to take on the show which was Trump appealing uh, of Pence's subpoena. Now, we, we talked about this, and as, you, as we kind of, you noted, and, and we both talked about, there was going to be some potential merit to the idea uh, of the speech and debate clause of the Constitution. And the U.S. District Court, in part, as you predicted on this front, Ken, agreed. But that did not stop him from having to testify regarding his conversations with Trump as they would not be related. And so as a result of this, Pence basically says, I agree. There's some things I don't I can't talk about because of that. But there's other things I can talk about. I'm not going to appeal. So this then led Trump to appeal the order uh, of the district court judge. Uh, although his specific argument remains sealed, so I can't look at that and, and tell you about that. What we can say, though, uh, is what Trump's counsel has said about what the, what the thrust of the argumentation is. And, and this is a direct quote from him, quote, uh, the DOJ is continuously stepping far outside the standards of norms in attempting to destroy the long accepted, long held constitutionally based standards of attorney client privilege. 
and he goes on to say that the special counsel is conducting a witch hunt where the government has sought to violate constitutional norms, including the safeguards that protect a president's ability to confer with his confer with his vice president on matters of the security of the United States, end quote. Uh, now, of course, whether or not that security is positive or negative is up for debate, I suppose. Uh, you know, uh, but well, well, I guess I, I won't take all those pot shots and just say, yeah, what I mean, it, it, again, I can't look and neither can you at the at the at the legal filing. But in terms of what's being presented from Trump's counsel, this doesn't really appear to be anything other than the standard practice of delay with real no substantive reasoning to it. Because if there was much substantive reasoning to it, there's no reason to think that Pence wouldn't have appealed himself. Right. Well, there could be one different argument that Trump might be trying to make, which wouldn't have been um, something Pence would have appealed because it wasn't something Pence was asserting. But um, Pence was really primarily asserting that in his capacity as president of the Senate, um, he was entitled to the same kind of um, immunity that other senators are entitled to, which is which comes from the seat or debate clause um, of, of, of the of Article One, Section Six of the Constitution. So the idea is that Congress members, as really a protection for separation of powers, that they shouldn't be intimidated by the executive branch, that that law enforcement shouldn't you know try to um, try to in interrogate um, uh, Congress members about uh, their congressional work about things they say in the Congress, about bills, about hearings, that they just have an immunity from that. And Pence made the argument that, you know, because he as vice president is president of the Senate, um, he gets that immunity. And the court agreed with him. And, and yeah, you and I had discussed it and I had predicted that. But what, what, what the court also and that is novel because no vice president has ever before um, even asked for right. speech or debate right. clause we, immunity. We talked so, about so that as link. Yeah, yeah. It was a novel claim, but I think it was a meritorious claim in the 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 um, the court thought so, too. But what the court also said is, well, you know, if in, in, in connection with the electoral vote count on, on January 6th, that that speech or debate clause immunity would apply to that um, because that's something you're doing as president of the Senate. But it would really only apply to your communications with other senators. It wouldn't really apply to um, communications that, you know, were outside the Senate and that have nothing to do with anything so like text messages that we talked about with Donald Trump. Donald Trump, right. Yeah. That that's, that stuff wouldn't be covered by that immunity, that that the legislative immunity is about legislative communications. And and if, 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 if Trump is communicating with Pence in Pence's capacity as being Trump's um, vice president, part of Trump's administration, Trump's deputy, um, that's in his capacity as part of the executive branch. That's really not um, in his capacity as, as part of the legislature legislative branch. And so, you know, so, so, so the reason Trump expects um, Pence to do what Trump wants is because Trump's president and Pence, Pence is his vice president and his administration. So, so that, 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 that relationship arises out of the executive branch, not out of the legislative branch. So the, the vice president wears two hats, but um, it's only the one hat that gets the speech or debate clause immunity is his capacity as a senator. So that seems to me like not only a correct holding and one that I did anticipate, but also so um, since that's the argument Pence made and he won, um, he has nothing to really appeal on. Now, now Trump is, um, you know, appealing that, I take it, but he's going to go nowhere with that. He, he may also be bringing in a claim of executive um, uh, uh, executive privilege. And uh, well, that's, that clearly has to be the only thing he's second here in, in terms of yeah. what the council is saying in the second part. Yeah, which, which we yeah. talked about before, too. So take us through yeah. that. 
Yeah. So the executive privilege would be it would be inconsistent with Pence's claim. You know, Pence is saying I should get some privilege because I was in this capacity, um, the president of the Senate, a senator, um, whereas Trump would actually be saying, no, he should get privilege over his communications with me because he's part of my administration. Um, but I think in this case, um, be, you know, there, there is a little bit of um, executive privilege and it was originally recognized in the Nixon case, the Watergate tapes case. But of course, the unanimous nine nothing holding in the Watergate tapes case is that al although presidents pre presumptively have executive privilege, um, that ends, um, you know, if, if it has to give way to the, um, you know, a, a legitimate criminal investigation and that if, if the presidents are um, committing crimes um, and that's being investigated, um, then that's that's outside the scope of the executive privilege. And the, the Watergate tapes case does give a mechanism for um, kind of sorting through that, because, of course, the president could say, well, I don't think I was committing a crime. And so why should I have to reveal what I was saying just because they say I'm committing crime? But but um, the Watergate tapes says, well, then that then if, if the president wants to make that claim about individual communications, then those communications can be um, reviewed in camera by the judge. And if the judge agrees that these were privileged communications, which is not impossible, um, then then the judge uh, would say, okay, you don't you don't have to disclose it. Um, but but you know the privileges that are actually um, communicating that that are evidence of a crime, they're going to lose their privilege. And and if the judge finds that, then he's going to just give it to the prosecutors, and it's going to become public. Yeah. Well, I, I think the last thing here that I wanted to ask before we we kind of wrap up, and that was I had wondered about so. If, as, as you had predicted would be the case, and we had talked about on shows previous, you have Pence operating in a legislative capability, and thus why you have speech and debate clauses, wouldn't it be hard to, and again, this would be a different kind of ruling, because again, we haven't had a circumstance like this, but it would seem to be hard to say that you could at the same time or adjacent to your activating yourself in the legislative capacity of the vice presidential constitutional role, that you were also in your executive capability in your in your role. And if you're not in your executive role, how could you be having executive privilege? Right. So, yeah, so Pence was saying that Pence's position is that this was in his legislative role. Yeah, but, so I'm talking about, yeah. I mean, again, I, I, I recognize that's not what Pence was arguing. I'm yeah. asking, since we're in new territory, yeah. what do you think about that argument? That, that's been rolling around in my head is, can you have those two roles happening simultaneously? In other words, or if you have one activated, does the other one have to, by default, not be on? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess... I think that has to be answered in a case specific way. Now, so here, I think if, if Trump is trying to influence um, uh, uh, Pence um, to violate the law, to violate the Electoral Count Act and not not count um, votes that are uh, uh, properly presented at the at the count ceremony, um, I don't think that that conversation is Even either. It's not part of um, uh, either Trump's or Pence's duties as the executive, and and it's not part of Pence's duties as the the president of the Senate. Right? It's a conversation that's totally outside the scope of their employment. It's just it's just a conversation about violating the law. It's not a conversation about um, doing their duties. So I think you know there might still be an argument that even something like that 
could be um, speech or debate, could have speech or debate clause immunity if it had been a conversation between legislators, you know, if both of them were legislators or, or, or if Trump had, you know, if Trump had said something like that on the floor of the House, um, there, there probably is a, a valid speech or debate clause argument that a legislator. Um, so, for instance, if you think about like the Pentagon Papers case, Senator Mike Gravel commits um, open violation of the National Security Act by by reading the Pentagon Papers on the floor of the Senate, and he's still protected by the speech or debate clause immunity because even even if a if if a if a senator or, or Congress member give, you know makes a speech in the House and and violates a law in that speech, you know they're they're still protected. So 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 in certain contexts, legislators are going to get that kind of protection. But 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 Trump's not a legislator, and and Trump is uh, he's more subject to the the rule from U.S. v. Nixon that. Um, he he can get a lot of executive privilege, but it's going to sometimes have to give way um, if if the communications are are, are criminal. And and I think so. I think here I would just say neither of them could apply here, right? The speech or debate clause immunity can't apply to Trump because 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 Trump's not in the Congress, and the executive um, privilege could apply to Trump, but it doesn't because this was a conversation about a crime. Yeah. So I hear that and that makes sense. Okay, well, Ken, I think what we need to do, though, I know it's crazy, but I think we need to wrap up our 400th episode. All right. Well, 400 and a... So, so you know, you know what's I was just thinking about this, you know, since we've done so many kind of different things for supporters of the show, we'll have to figure out, like, how many supporter shows have we had? I think maybe we'll have to do when we get all done. Uh, uh, so one of the things that we're going to be doing is as soon as we get into the show... Ken and I, as we always do, we're going to take on the Constitution. And, and we'd love for you to join us in the I don't know what number yet of the Constitution show. So maybe we get done with the Constitution. We'll have to count up all of our Constitution shows to see how many it ends up being. Uh, but I'm really happy if you followed along with this week. And if you are curious and if you want to join us in that constitutional uh, uh, supporters only show, which I love, that's been a lot of fun for uh, me personally to put that together. And I know that supporters on Discord have loved talking about it. Uh, we'd love for you to have access to that. And, and to be honest, whether you're doing it for the bonus show or you're doing it just because you love this show and you want to get it ad free or just because you want to support something that's really cool and make these microphones and other things possible that we have, you know, this podcast only works because of supporters. So if you want to become a supporter and get all kinds of cool stuff, like I've just mentioned, the ad-free version of the show and our supporters' exclusive midweek show, uh, where we break away and do the Constitution for, for the time being, we'd love to have you be a part of that. Uh, and so you can get access to things like our Discord group, which, you know, again, came up in the, in the show this week. So you can always head down in the show notes. They're right there for, for doing that. And there's all different kinds of levels that you can be based on what kind of supporter you are. Uh, so, you know, depending on what your level is, you're going to have Discord access. You could be an executive supporter potentially and get even more access. But to figure all of that out, to learn all about those levels, I won't go through everything because it's easy to figure out. Just gonna, you're going to head to patreon.com slash politics, guys. That's patreon.com slash politics, guys. Now, if, if Patreon isn't your thing, there's other ways to support us, and that includes Venmo, where we're at, Politics Guys. You can also uh, support the show through PayPal. You can see all of our support links along with show notes in the show notes, uh, and or by heading to politicsguys.com slash support. Now, if you'd like to get that midweek Constitution show, uh, but you're just not in a position financially to do that, 
trust me, I've got three kiddos. I know what that's like. Right. Uh, you know, you, you don't work at, uh, at a Christian university for the money and the fame. That's just not why it is. I understand what's, what, what that's like. So please just shoot an email out to Mike at Mike at Politics Guys, and he would happily get you set up. And I'd love for you to follow along with us as well. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, one of the free things you can do is subscribe to this show on Apple, on Spotify, or whatever the, the um, podcast app of your choice is. And, and ditto for rating and reviewing us. That is huge. And show is sharing those episodes on social media. I know you all out there are a lot better at tagging things and adding things than I am uh, or Ken. I, I know you're better than Ken. Uh, <laughs> so please, you got to do that for us, right? We need help on those fronts. Uh, if you've got a question, comment, correction, great, or as uh, Mike always likes to put it, manifesto or just anything else, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. You're also welcome to rant at us at Facebook and on Twitter. You're going to see all of those links in the show notes, and we do try to get back to as many of those as we can. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano. Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode next week, and I sincerely hope that you'll join us then.